going to talk about prayer tonight. We're going to get into it. And uh, we are, my, my message title is Getting Personal with Prayer. And uh, it is an incredible thing, prayer. And I, I want to I open it up because I know I grew up within a Christian context. My, my parents went to church. Uh, I grew up like this, under the pews, probably not watching something, but I respect that. Man, if you're a kid in the house all day every, on a Sunday, you do what you want on a Sunday night. And, uh, but I, I grew up under the pews sleeping there with my sleeping bag and my pillow. And uh, <laughs> it wouldn't, weren't wooden pews, so that's a win. And, uh, but prayer for me growing up, I was familiar with it. My parents prayed with me as I went to sleep. Uh, such a blessing to have that in my life. Um, but prayer really came alive to me probably in my later years. I became a, a, a made my own decision for Christ um, outside of my family faith when I was probably about 14 years old at a youth camp because youth camps are anointed. <laughs> of course, my youth camp was actually camping, and uh, that's cool. Uh, if you don't know youth camp, that means nothing to you. And, uh, but prayer is actually something that runs within the DNA and the lifeblood of a Christian that actually extends beyond the participation of religious activity. And uh, in the scripture, there's these guys named the disciples, and they were the people that Jesus said, come and follow me. And so they did. They followed Jesus, and they they. There was 12 particular disciples. There was actually a bunch of disciples. Not all of them are named, but we know that there's like at least 2,000 or 10,000 people listening to him at one time. Um, and uh, but there's, we just say that the disciples, so let's assume the 12 were just living in the same place. They were eating the same thing. They were in the same boat. They watched where Jesus went, how he spoke, the miracles he performed. And uh, in all the midst of this, they were given anointing and power to go out and actually drive out demons and to prepare the way for Jesus to go and minister to particular cities. And they came back and they celebrated the fact that uh, demons were cast out and they saw leprous people, people outcasted by society brought in. They saw Jesus have dinners with people that no one in society was loving. And they asked Jesus a question. They asked them Jesus, would you teach us something? And it would seem that if it was me, I'd be like, hey, can you please teach me a communication strategy for moving past, I don't know, some of the cultural walls of the day, and we can push past that, and we can, I don't know, br really bring the fire, you know, bring some tongues, you know, except tongues weren't thing then. But, uh, but or it might be, hey, is there a, is there a way to actually introduce yourself to really connect with someone or, hey, how do you engage with culture and how do you engage with maybe uh, contradictions or people in opposition to you? And they ask none of these questions in the scripture. That's not what we're told. In but the thing they do ask Jesus to teach them, and this is the only time recorded in the gospels that the disciples specifically came to Jesus and asked them, Lord, would you teach me? In the rest of the times, Jesus being Jesus is good teacher, so he taught them. But this is the one thing that they specifically requested an imp like a teaching on. And it comes in Luke 11, verses 1. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place, he being Jesus. And when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John also taught his disciples. There's a, 
there's a scholar named R.C. Sproul, and it says, I'm certain that the disciples clearly, clearly saw an inseparable relationship between the power of Jesus manifested and the hours he spent in solitude covering, um, conversing with his Father. There is something that in the eyes of the disciples that as Jesus walked around ministering to people, that they didn't ask him, hey, how do I raise the dead? They didn't ask him, how do I communicate effectively? They asked him, Jesus, how do I pray? And I feel like in my experience of growing up within the Christian context, maybe I actually saw Christian, oh, sorry, prayer as something you, you do at certain points of the day um, before you eat, and that's just like really permission to eat. <laughs> maybe when you go to bed, maybe you're around the table, I'm not sure. But it was at moments, it was during a, maybe the, the lead or transition moment on a Sunday, we, I know we pray then. I know I, we pray when we go to church, um, but within this context, we actually see a totally different framework that the disciples witnessed in the life of Jesus, saying, this is the very substance, the very lifeblood from which Jesus operated. And so, we understand that, and so what I want us to do today is, I'm going to read just a, a passage of Scripture, and I am very aware that I have too many notes for the period of time that we've got, so it's going to be some good fun. But Matthew 14, 22, these scriptures will not be on the screen, says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead on the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went on to the mountainside to pray by himself. Mark's, Mark 6, 46, leaving them, he went on to the mountain to pray. Luke 5, 16, he, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke 6, 12, one of the days Jesus went onto the mountainside and prayed and spent the night praying to God. Mark 1, 35, early in the morning, he, while it was still um, dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went to the solitary pray, place where he prayed. Luke 9, 18, once when Jesus was praying in a private place, the disciples were with him. Matthew 26, 36, when Jesus went to the disciples, he said, wait here while I go a little further and pray. And John 17, all of it. All 26 goodness of verses, this is Jesus communing with his Father, and it is something very important to Jesus, so it is something very important to us. We're going to read what is commonly un understood as the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to do like a high-altitude reconnaissance mission on prayer, because there is so much in prayer. There's literally like church fathers from like OG days um, if you don't know what that means, it means original. <laughs> Youth pastor. <laughs> From the original days of written libraries on prayer. And uh, you can go and read them. But we are going to get a high altitude bird's eye reconnaissance mission on prayer today. Because it's just, prayer, if it is the lifeblood, there is so much depth to it. Because it is communion with the Father. So now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, Luke 1, or sorry, Luke 11, I realized that I told um, our media team that this is going to be in a different version, so forgive me for the discrepancies. You can blame my, blame my brother-in-law, because he's the one who made the notes. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, that when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray... Not if you pray, but when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Verses five, and he said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to give him. And he will answer with, in him and said, don't trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed with me. I can't rise and give it to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give it to him because he is a friend, yet because he is persistent, he will rise and give him as much as he needs. Verses 9, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receive. Those who seek, find. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Which of you fathers, if you asks for a, uh, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Classic scorpion. I just love that. I love how distant this is sometimes from our reality. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? I love how, like, confusing Jesus is sometimes. In, like, that last passage, it's like he spoke about three different things, but he also spoke about the one thing at the same time. So this is fun. The Bird's Eye High Altitude Reconnaissance Mission of Prayer, the first thing I observe in this space around Jesus' intention around prayer is it is relational breathing. Relational breathing. When he, uh, when he opens this up, and he says, our father. This might be something that we're familiar with, this term, our father, but this totally blew the socks off all who were listening. Because when Jesus got on the scene, they'd experienced Moses, they'd experienced David, they knew Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all these people. And, but when Jesus got to the scene and there's this engagement with father and son, this changed everything. This changed everything. It went from distant Lord and Father who I provide my sacrifices for uh, to my intimate Father. This word, our Father, it's this, this word, Abba, which is like this personal intimacy, but also this respectful Father position. And so uh, in engaging with this, he is opening up this relational uh, tendency or insider speck of what prayer is. And he's saying, my Father, my father, when Jesus was baptized um, by John the Baptist, there was an angel, uh, sorry, the Holy Spirit descended on him in the likeness of a dove. And what did open up and the audible voice of God say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased to listen to him. There is an intimacy that is generated between the son and the father that he is demonstrating for his disciples. Now, though this is called the Lord's Prayer, um, I want to if we look at verse 4 and it says, forgive us our sins for those we forgive against us, Jesus didn't sin. So it should be the disciples' prayer. <laughs> so when he's saying our Father in heaven, he, he's not saying my Father, he's saying your Father. Your Father. Now this, this might not hit home to you. Uh, my dad is a fantastic dad. I love my dad to bits. He's older than me, a little bit shorter with the exact same mannerisms sort of creepy. <laughs> Extremely, apparently, according to Mr. Myhill. <laughs> but 
But you, but, but, yeah, I just feel like Mr. Y held you. <laughs> but when I converse with my father, my dad, it's intimate. It's honest. You know, when you're feeling distant from God, you don't have to present your best self and you don't have to like come. I know we know this, but when we think about it, we sort of feel distant sometimes or like, I, man, I'm too busy to do this. Or maybe it's just I haven't said enough in a long time that I feel a little bit, I don't know, separated. That in some way, shape or form, we've developed this idea that we have to, again, prove ourselves in the position to communicate with our father again. But like even just in the green room before, Dan said that when, when his son gets really excited, it just maybe there's no words involved, but he can communicate with his son. There is this, this understanding of I want to talk with my kids. We talk about prayer being around us and what we can provide to God, but what if God just wants to talk to you? What if God wants us to love on you? What if God wants to know how your day is going? What is going on in your big brain? How you're feeling or what you're not feeling? Or maybe you're angry at God. If you're angry at God, get honest with God because you need to talk to Him about that. I remember hearing a story about a guy who got radically saved and he just couldn't shake the fact that he still wanted to swear about everything. And so he was like, God, I don't want to get rid of this. And so he's in his car and he's driving and he felt the Holy Spirit say, pull over. I want you to say to me everything you don't think you want to say to me. And he just started. And he said, you good? Yep, left him. Done. Because, you know, just what if it's about the connection rather than the performance? What if it's actually about, I want to be with my kids. I want to be with my kids. I was, we were, went here last week because we were at a family thing actually with my parents which means my whole week was totally thrown off because if you're not at a Sunday, what happens to Monday? I just, anyway. <laughs> but like, I, I don't live anywhere near my parents, but when I s- sit with my family, I don't have to try and be a son. Nor does he have to try and be my dad. It's just how it is. And so you just talk. What if, what if prayer isn't about the things that we've made it to be? What if it's just about a son and a daughter talking with their dad? And I'm not sure about you, I don't talk to my dad, and my dad's name is Wayne, by the way, this won't make sense if I didn't say that, being like, Father Wayne. Oh, Daddy Wayne. (laughs) But just engaging with conversation. It's weird, way. Eh? Wait, church language, if you break it down, it's funny. I'm not dissing on any of that. I do it all the time. But I'm just saying, if we just need to push past maybe the, some of the mentalities that we've developed and maybe some of the structures and the lies that start to infiltrate our hearts that as we don't commune with the Father anymore, maybe some things start to separate and maybe some things, misideas about the Father come into it. There's this, there's this quote by Oswald Chambers. I'm on the quotes tonight, by the way. And uh, it says, If we think a prayer is breath in our lungs and blood from our hearts, we are thinking rightly. The blood flows ceaselessly and breathing continues ceaselessly. We're not conscious of it, but it's always going on. 
We are not always conscious of Jesus keeping us in perfect joint with God, but if we are obeying Him, He always is. Prayer is not an exercise, it is the life. I'm going to hit you another, another quote. Dr. Constable, in his commentary on Luke 11, says, Prayer is the dis- discipline of dependence on God, and as such is life breath to every b- disciple of Jesus. I think it's like a relational discipline. Like in my life with my wife, I can't get another rhyming word, so um, uh, we have relational disciplines. They might, we might call them relational disciplines, but we might eat at the table together and make sure we debrief our day. We might um, have a cup of tea after we decompress from our days. Or I don't know what you do. Maybe, maybe it's putting the kids to bed. You have a moment. And they're relational disciplines to create space for what? In order to connect, commune, and go deeper with the person. And so this prayer is just a relational discipline to create space for community and communion with the Father. I like this quote that we did a we did a full series on prayer in youth, and this was a thing. It was prayer is to the spirit what breath is to the body. Prayer is to the spirit what breath is to the body. And so when we get busy and we start forgetting or turning prayer into a performance or an exercise, we actually stop breathing. Isn't that confronting? And I'm not up here trying to shame anybody. That's not what this is. I need this as much as anyone. We're here because we need a Savior, Jesus, and we're just trying to engage with what He's got. Shame is not from the kingdom. This is an invitation to start participating in a deeper level with the Father. Second bird's eye, high altitude view thing I get is he is a good father and you can trust a good father. I mentioned my dad. My dad is going to come off top notch from this message. I mean, uh, it's his birthday soon. I'll just send him this. And... <laughs> but... Uh, I told this story a couple of weeks ago from just the, the prayer moment, is when I was uh, studying at university, I was living in both Noosa and uh, Southside Brisbane, and uh, that's like a whole nother world away, by the way. There's things called tolls and bridges, and uh, I was living in a place called Mount Gravatt. I was working in Logan Home, um, but traveling up for the weekends in Noosa, and so there was a lot of toing and froing. Um, and I was studying, and so I would go up to Noosa, where my parents live, and pretty much get inside, say hello, dump my keys, dump my stuff, and hit the books. And uh, what my dad used to do is, without me knowing, he would take, steal my keys. He stole. No. Uh, <laughs> he would take my car keys, take my car, and get, go and fill up my fuel for me without me knowing. That's just what dads do. That's just what dads do. And so when we read in here, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, are going to give him a rock or a snake? And if he asks for an egg, whose kid is asking them for an egg? <laughs> we'll give him a scorpion. If you then know how to give good gifts, how much more? How much more does God want to give you good gifts? He's not only a father, he is a good father. I'm not sure your relationship with your father, but everything that you've ever desired in a father, he is the embodiment of that. It doesn't say that he just has love. He is love. 
He breathes love. This is a part of his DNA. And so when, when we engage with him, we can trust that he is a good, good father. And so what this means is our approach is different. I no longer have to come with, to God with the mentality of I need to beg, manipulate, or convince him to do anything for me. He wants to do good things for his children. He wants to do good things for his children. And so when I come and I pray and say, God, I'm hurting, he goes, I know, son. I know, son. Take courage. Keep going. Keep moving. Or if, man, God, I don't know how this is going, or he's, I've, I've got you, son. I've got you, son. I've, help's on the way. Deliverance is on the way. Or maybe, I, I love in this part of the scripture above it where, it where it talks about this idea of asking and seeking and knocking. And, and the way I know I learned about this is just be annoying in prayer. That's how I learned about it. <laughs> it gets that idea. It's like, be this person knocking on this guy's door and saying, give me bread. <laughs> but that's actually not what it's saying. Because it's not talking, because that would mean that God's not a good God, right? Because we're tr now trying to manipulate his mentality into favor towards us, but that's not how it's saying it. It's saying even in the sight maybe of what you're praying for, not coming to a fruition according to your expectation, keep praying. Keep praying because it is lifeblood. Take heart. Take heart. You know, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so as we saturate our minds, as we experience prayerfulness, things change and we experience hope again. Now let's just go straight to prayerfulness. Prayerfulness. The, the team can come and join me. Now, the, this is our third and last bird's eye high altitude perspective. I don't know, I get like a World War I sort of spitfire, yeah. <laughs> sort of hovering over France with some really low res images, but um, I don't know. That's just where my brain goes, but that's cool. But prayerfulness. And I, I use this term because I'm stealing it from someone else. And, uh, <laughs> but the. What is that idea of prayerfulness? We, we know about prayer, and like, but prayerfulness, to be full of prayer. Now, if, if we're talking about a religious concept of exercising certain habits, then that makes sense to, not really makes sense, sorry, where you're just sort of praying constantly. But if we're talking about breathing in, within the lifeblood of a Christian, within a follower of Christ, this makes so much sense. To live in prayerfulness is to saturate your mind and your soul with the heart and the will of God. And this does many things in the life of a, a Christ follower, but I want to pull two things out and they're practical things. Prayerfulness combats against temptation. In uh, Matthew 26 verses 39 and 41, going a little farther, he, Jesus, fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, make this cup be taken away from me. This is Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane before he's to be crucified. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you 
man, keep watch with me for one hour. He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. When you live and dwell in a place of prayerfulness, it saturates your mind in such a way that you are able to discern temptation and not even have to knock on its door. I'm uh, taking an illustration from Bill Johnson because he took it from somebody else. And it's the idea, and it's an American term, but say two men walk into a diner and they sit down and one friend is in great distress, distress. He's got anxiety around his finance. He's a bit desperate. He's feeling a bit of a, a spout of depression on his life and he's catching up with his friend because he needs hope. And this friend that he's catching up with is, he's just going all guns for Jesus. He is feeling content with where he is. He knows that God's got him. He's got supply. And they sit down at this table that's just been left by another man. So they sit down and things haven't been cleared yet. The waitress comes over, starts clearing the plates, and uh, they order. But the waitress fails to see that there is a tip. You know it's not Australian because it's got a tip involved. A $100 tip slipped in between the, the salt shaker and something else that is in a diner. And the man that this guy's coming to meet to bring hope and says, hey, just give me two seconds. I just need to go to the bathroom. I'll be back. Meanwhile, this guy who's desperate anxiety is left at this table staring down this $100 bill that he notices that the waitress hasn't yet. And there's a thought within his mind that says, she doesn't know yet. I could take it and be okay. And then he goes, oh, nah, nah, that's not me. That's not who I am. All good. And he, he says, nah, and, and controls himself, resists the temptation and continues on. Meanwhile, the friend comes back sees the $100 bill, raises it to the waitress and says, ah, you've been left a fantastic tip. What's the difference? The difference is that it didn't even cross the mind of the man who had saturation and prayerfulness with God to experience that temptation. He didn't even knock on the door. Whereas the other guy had to enter it in order to withdraw. But a state of prayerfulness and saturation within the heart of God actually exposes you to discern the good and the bad and the ugly in your world. And so when you operate and you uh, go throughout your day and you say, ah, oh, there's an opportunity that's going to trigger me in a negative way. I don't know what that, that could be towards anger. That could be towards, I don't know, averting your eyes. I don't know. But it's identifying that temptation. The other thing that prayerfulness does is it is the enemy of worry. We get a glimpse of this in Philippians 4, 4 to 7. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Jesus Christ. We understand this relationship from this passage. That as prayer enters, worry exits. Which means, if prayer exits, worry enters. And it's interesting to me, I don't know how much you worry about things, but worry is just like second nature for me. I don't have to think about it. It is just like worry, worry, worry. It's like I... I 10,000 thoughts within a day that can go so quickly to worry. But what? it's interesting that that equates to prayer, though. 
because the frequency of which we might worry actually might be actually a testament to the frequency from which we commune and pray. And that's confronting because I know that I don't do that. Man, I am, I'm on my mission. I want to get with God. I want to know Him more clearly, but I'm on a journey, hey, and I need the Holy Spirit to help me in that. And so, as I said, this is not a conversation to bring shame around your life. Actually, it's quite the opposite. It's an invitation to participate deeper with your Father. Shame is not of this world. There's actually a difference between shame and uh, conviction or condemnation and conviction. Condemnation says, you are not enough. You can't, you won't. This is who you are. And what it... Um, causes is a desire to withdraw and isolate yourself whereas conviction comes and is served on the plate of forgiveness in the hand of God and it says I'm not denying that this is not optimal but what I am saying is this is not who you were made to be so come up with me my son come up with me my friend and that's conviction calling you out of something into something not pushing you deeper. So if you ever feel that sense of condemnation, that's not God. In fact, here's a revelation. You're not qualified to condemn yourself because you don't own yourself. You don't belong to you anymore. It is Christ who bought you with a price. So stop discounting what He paid such a high price for. You're worth more than that. 